leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The biotechnology industry continued to post record numbers, attract significant investment, and won approval for a solid number of new drugs in 2015. Nevertheless, EY in its new Beyond Borders report warns that there's a deceleration within the industry that points to threats that could undermine the robust growth the industry has enjoyed. We spoke to Glenn Giovanetti, EY Global Biotechnology Leader, about the new report the need for the industry to innovate pricing models for new drugs, and why, as companies seek to demonstrate the value of a product, they will need to consider the unique perspective of each payer. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be here, Danny. With Bio 2016, you released the 30th edition of the Beyond Borders report on the industry. Overall, plenty of big numbers and, and signs of a maturing industry, but, but also an industry facing real challenges that echo themes in, in recent years. Looking back, how good a year was 2015? Uh, well, as you say, there's, there's a lot of big numbers, and in that respect, the numbers don't lie. It was you know, a very good year with you know, record revenues, mostly, of course, driven by a Couple handful of large companies that we call the commercial leaders, but you know, nice increases in revenue, nice increases overall, and in, in, uh, profits from those companies. Uh, broader, looking broader to the whole population of companies, you know, still a fairly strong fundraising year. Although, uh, and, and we should chat about this, you know, things certainly slowed down at the end of uh, 15 and into 16. Uh, and you know, a nice increase in R and D spending. So, you know, if you look at some of those traditional metrics. 15 was a very good year. Uh, a little bit of a story of two years, right? Um, looking back, first half very strong, and then, you know, the market um, uh, certainly pulled back. Some of that was probably due to happen anyway under, uh, you know, sort of normal sector rotation types of uh, uh, challenges. You know, we had a long, you know, three, four year kind of uh, bull run of investor enthusiasm for biotech. Uh, but of course, you know, um, uh, some of the well-documented uh, episodes around, uh, you know, certain pricing uh, controversies. A uh, couple of companies that were in the in the news, along with the whole presidential election sort of rhetoric around things, certainly sped things up. So, uh, you know, it's kind of two different years, but but we certainly didn't leave 15 and aren't here in 16 uh, in any way pessimistic. This wasn't, uh, you know, a bust part of the cycle. The, the overall story for the industry is still quite strong. Well, you know, there are not only highs in revenues and income, but a deceleration for both. 
How much of a theme do you think that will continue to be in, and what kind of actions might companies take to counter that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that underlies really the the key challenge for everybody in the industry, whether you're a, a biotech commercial leader, a big pharma, or you know, a, a company, uh, an earlier stage of biotech developing a product. You know, and we've talked about this in in the past, right? The the pressure on healthcare budgets uh, is high, and it's it's only going to grow um, for lots of you know, sort of macro demographic trends, uh, uh, not just because new medicines are coming out that happen to have high price tags. That that's a that's that tends to grab the the story, and it's part. You know, it's truthfully part of the story. But you know, uh, as a, as societies, at least in the developed world, we're getting older, and to a large extent, uh, unfortunately, we're getting sicker in terms of instances of chronic disease and the like. So, healthcare budgets for both of those reasons are under strain. And they, they really are uh, going to struggle to um, uh, to deal with what is a, a you know pretty strong pipeline of very innovative medicines coming, which is great, of course. I mean that's great for us as as a as society, as patients, et cetera. But that pressure on uh, healthcare budgets is um, is a reality. It's a long term trend. It'll be with us, and it's going to it um, it is going to in the short term. Uh, uh, be a drag or a headwind on growth, uh, and it's going to require different strategies from companies um, uh, as they either approach commercialization or, or even those in the market to be, frankly, a little bit more innovative and strategic in their pricing. Uh, you know, the industry has experimented with and and um, you know has several sort of examples of of new payment models, be they true performance based or sometimes they're you know more volume or managed entry kind of market based deals. But to a large degree those have been done more defensively when a payer just couldn't provide the level of access uh at the price that that a particular company was looking for. We really think the longer term trend is to kind of move beyond the transactional to a, a strategic relationship that is frankly more playing offense and being on the front foot about, you know, what kind of relationship can payers and companies have to um uh you know to, to adequately reimburse for the risk taken and the value created, but also to really uh, uh more accurately measure that value. Uh, so there's there's real opportunity there, uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, in the short term, growth, um, you know, we'll see a growth headwind uh, in the absence of a Savaldi type, you know, product introduction that uh, makes the whole industry look great. You mentioned Savaldi when we used to crunch the industry numbers. It got to a point where we wanted to look at the data without Genentech because it had become so dominant and outsized that it skewed the real picture of the industry. Gilead now represents almost 25% of the industry's revenues. To to get a real picture of the industry, do we need to remove Gilead? Well, I think you need to remove all of the commercial leaders, or at least that's the approach we've taken. So uh, my self-interested answer there is because it's something we, uh, you know, the strategy we've taken is, you know, there's there's a couple of handfuls. We know the names. Uh, you know, certainly Gilead's at the top of that list, you know, but obviously Amgen and Regeneron and Celgene and Biogen and, you know, now, you know, Shire Baxalta is going to be very large. Uh, those companies that are really true commercial leaders, they have a story, they have a, they have uh, their own trends, their own set of immediate challenges. And then, you know, you got to look at everybody else. We, we arbitrarily make the cutoff 500 million of revenue. You could, you could set the bar somewhere else, but the vast majority of companies below that level are still R&D stage. And, and we know they have a different set of challenges, uh, you know, around capital access, around strategic transactions, around, you know, advancing their pipeline and dealing with the regulatory environment and, and whatnot. Now, they can't 
uh, have, they can't avoid having a longer term view towards the commercialization challenges and demonstrating value, uh, for, for the products that are in their pipeline, et cetera. Uh, they're just at a different stage in their evolution. We've been through an unprecedented biotech IPO market in recent years. That's slowed, but are we past the point of thinking about biotech IPO windows? Is, is this an industry that's mature enough and are investors committed enough to the industry that at least for quality at a price, there will always be an IPO market regardless of the ups and downs of the industry? Um, yeah, you know, uh, a few years ago, we we had a headline of, you know, the end of windows, and then we saw the mother of all windows. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, never say never, I guess. Um, uh, I you know, absent a financial crisis where the market just completely shuts down, I think uh, at least, a, you know, we've seen a big slowdown, but there are still companies getting out there, you know, even in the last few weeks. Um, we've seen some companies announce their offerings. We'll see how they price. Uh, but, it, you know, the market isn't completely shut down. I, I think it's more, though, a phenomenon of capital flows. And uh, we probably talked about this last year and certainly in 2014. You know, when the generalist investors come in and they're excited about biotech and we're in that part of the cycle, there's just a lot more money there. And there's a, there is a window for more companies to jump through. Uh, maybe that window doesn't close all the way when the, when the funds cycle to other sectors, but it certainly is a narrow window uh, if you want to extend the analogy to, uh, to jump through. So, um, you know, I, I don't think we'll avoid that sort of cycle where we'll, you know, in, in a particular year or two-year period uh, for other macro trends, we see opportunities for tens of companies to go. You know, the question is, is it completely famine on the other side? And, you know, right now it looks like, yes, there's opportunity for, you know, good stories, good technologies at the right price to still get out there. It was another big year for drug approvals, but more than half of those were for orphan drugs. What does that say about the industry, and does it speak at all to the pricing pressures from payers? It, well, it absolutely does, and, and it, it sort of tells you where the um, where the pipelines are aligned to. It, you know, and it's not all orphan per se. I get well. I guess I think about it even in the context of. Um, you know, precision medicine more targeted. And I guess in some cases you end up with a population that by definition you're orphaned. But it's a, it's a real um, manifestation of that pricing pressure to say, look, we've got to get a product to the market that is differentiated. And, uh, you know, the best way to do that is to, uh, to more uh, precisely define a population where that is likely to respond and, and that we can show in the real world, you know, um, efficacy and, and hopefully therefore efficiency to the system so that you know that message has reverberated through the the um, um, you know the decisions in terms of at least the initial indications for some of these drugs I mean obviously in certain um, especially in oncology there's opportunity to extend the label later but uh, at least for the initial approvals that's seen as um, you know probably the most favorable strategy in terms of uh, getting the initial product to market relatively efficiently um, you know, it is interesting, a uh, broader picture, the sort of case study of, uh, uh, you know, um, some of the immuno-oncology drugs that have gone broader, in particular, I'm thinking Bristol-Myers here, who, you know, decided to do trials without a biomarker and, and have done incredibly well. So it's not a one-size-fits-all um, strategy. But yes, I think generally, and especially as you look at emerging biotech companies that are uh, even though they're, they've been able to refill their coffers recently because of favorable capital markets, you know, are going to remain focused on capital efficiency. 
uh, you know, it's an important strategy. Let's get let's get as targeted as possible. Let's get to the market as efficient as possible. Let's have the best chance of demonstrating value and getting reimbursed. And then, you know, let's see if there's opportunities um, to address, um, you know, more conditions on the label, uh, you know, when we're already there in the market. We've seen consolidation among payers. Is, is that affecting the balance of power between drug makers and payers? Yeah, and I think you've seen it uh, as well on the provider side, and you've seen uh, you know providers, um, uh, you know more integrated systems where you know you've got effectively payers being able to wanting to control more delivery, and it's all a consequence. All of that is a consequence of shifting balance of power uh, uh, around a um, you know a constrained budget for total healthcare costs. So, yeah, I, I do think that's. Um, that's certainly a factor. We, you know, you've seen it in the U.S. with more on the PBM side and their willingness to exert pressure um, on price through, you know, things like formulary exclusions. Uh, but yeah, that that shakeout of um, amongst really all the stakeholders or um, across healthcare is, you know, directly related to this this sustainability issue we talked about earlier. Uh, and I think we'll continue to see that. Um, you know whether it's it's more mergers or other ways to exert uh, um, pressure and negotiations that'll that'll be part of this continuing trend. Earlier this year, we spoke to your colleague Susan Garfield about the piece she co-authored with Alan Licking and in Vivo that called for the industry to embrace new partnerships with payers and embrace such pricing strategies as models that involve risk sharing. This year's Beyond Borders touches on those themes some more. One of the things you discussed is the idea of indication-specific pricing. To, to what extent are payers pushing that, and, and how does the industry view this? And any sign it's taking hold? Uh, there's just early signs at this point. Uh, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of complexities with that in terms of how drugs are actually prescribed and used. And so there's trepidation on that. But I think that is one of the models. Uh, you know, if you, if you really get down to... Uh, outcomes or value-based pricing, a particular drug could have more or less value in a particular indication. So I think it's a recognition of that, that, uh, you know, we're going to move from, in one form or fashion, uh, from unit-based pricing to value-based pricing over time. And so uh, leaving room for, uh, you know, um, different payments uh, based on uh, value created for a particular indication is certainly part of that. Obviously, there's you know regulatory impediments, best price uh, regulations on government, uh, you know Medicare pricing, Medicaid pricing, and so forth. But um, but yeah, I, you know there's early examples of it that's not prevalent, but it will be part of. In our view, it'll be part of the uh, sort of the arsenal of uh, new payment models going forward. You've got an interesting piece in this year's report from Roger Longman of Real Endpoints who argues that payers are not monolithic. That's to say, each operates under different economic realities, and what demonstrates value to one payer may be quite different than value to another. As companies seek to establish the value of their products, how does this complicate the challenge they face? Yeah, well, uh, it, it, it makes it very complicated, actually, because you know one could think of... Um, uh, you know, at the same time, we're advocating, and I think there's another piece in the report from Michael Sherman, as the chief medical officer at Harvard Pilgrim, talking about you know the need for pharma to be more strategic and think about strategic relationships with payers. All great. Roger's point's uh, also um, a very good one. 
the result, though, from if you take it from a perspective of a, a biotech company, a commercial biotech company, or a pharma company, a large, larger company, is that you know you're going to really have a, a plethora of of unique agreements uh, because not everybody's incentives uh, are the same, and and you know not every like you point out, not every payer's incentives are the same. It really depends on what part of the market they're addressing. Uh, you know that speaks to a a, a biopharma company needing to do real uh, market segmentation and say, you know, where are we? Where are we going to place our bets? Where's our, um, uh, you know, where does our strategy align with our, our commercial strategy align with our ability to demonstrate value? Uh, you know, might we have different types of arrangements for different payer categories uh, depending on what part of the population they're addressing? Uh, you know, all that adds complexity, and, and to a degree, you can think about it as, you know, the industry having used to have one business model of getting a product approved and you know, marketing it and, and reimbursement was sort of a secondary issue to now potentially having several business models uh, around a single product. You also talk about the move towards cures. How ready is the payer community in its push for value to pay for cures? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we uh, we recently uh, hosted a panel of several CEOs and uh, we were talking about uh, annuity-based payment models. Uh, which is, you know, often brought up when uh, when very high-priced curative medicines are discussed, there where the payback, you know, is uh, may, may come after over, you know, years if not decades. Uh, and we ask the question, uh, how soon before we see a a, a real annuity-based pricing model in the marketplace? And and you know, the first two responded said a decade, you know, which is always sort of that period that's far enough out that uh, you know it's acknowledging that it's likely to happen, but it's you know, it's far enough out there that uh, we're saying we really don't know when. And then one other CEO said two years. And we said, well, okay, that's a contrary position. What's driving that? And he said, well, I'm on the board of a gene therapy company. We're a couple years away. We know we're de- dealing with a, a small indication. It's going to have a very high price. You know, there's really practically no other way to do it. We're going to have to figure this out. And so uh, I think um, the headline we use in the report is the cures are coming as, as we see more curative medicine, either because of, you know, gene therapy or some of the gene editing technologies that are, you know, uh, albeit early, very exciting. Um, you know, I think the products themselves are going to force new kinds of models that uh, uh, that involve getting compensated over time as the value is created in the system. And, and again, um, easy to say, much harder to do because of regulatory constraints and so forth. But, uh, you know, over time, the regulations will have to catch up to the reality that uh, society will want these cures. Um, you know, we will want them for our family members. And uh, and yet we'll have to figure out how to, how to um, you know, pay for them in a way that doesn't bust budgets. We, we've got biosimilars starting to become a reality and a, a deceleration in, in revenue and earnings. Are, are we facing any type of a, a patent cliff in biotech that will be akin to anything like we saw in pharmaceuticals? Uh, not akin to pharmaceuticals, because as you're aware, you know, biosimilars are uh, um, different than a you know traditional generic. So the innovator is, is likely going to always be able to maintain you know a reasonable market position. Prices will come down, but I don't think we're going to see the sort of ninety percent or more you know. Uh, a decrease in the list price that you often see when there are multiple entrants in a, you know, in a small molecule uh, generic situation. Uh, but yes, yeah, so for the you know for companies that are highly dependent on a um, on an innovative biologic that now is going to face competition, 
uh, you know, they're going to see a significant decrease. They won't go down. You know, they won't either. I, my belief in most cases, they will stay in the market. Um, uh, uh, you know, and they'll, they'll maintain a reasonable share of that market, but uh, at least for that product, they'll see a fairly significant decline and, and need to make it up elsewhere. You know, I do think it's particularly interesting the number of commercial leaders who have now said, you know, uh, not with their own products, but they're going to effectively enter user manufacturing and marketing and sometimes therapeutic area expertise to enter the biosimilar market and, and actually play, um, uh, you know, as a competitor in that space because, you know, they're the technology means there's fairly high bars to entry. Uh, the way that all plays out and who ends up net winner and loser will be be interesting. But we won't see, you know, a case where, um, uh, or at least a typical case won't be a, where the competition drives the innovator completely out of the market. Glenn Giovanetti, EY Global Biotechnology Leader. Glenn, thanks as always. Thank you, Danny. I hope you have a good bio. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.